Hey guys, welcome back to this week's podcast. We hope this week's message inspires you and encourages you. Be sure to check out our website to find out more about us. Here's today's message. Hey? Good. Excellent. Well, I've got a question for you guys. Who loves a good conga line? <laughs> I don't see any hands and I think that's because I think you think I'm going to get you up here and do one, but I'm not. Don't worry. <laughs> But I love a good conga line, and I think there's no better way to get a party started, and I think we need to bring back the conga line to our parties, right? And, uh, but they're risky business, the old conga line, aren't they? Because if you're the first one getting one started, we all know there are those few awkward moments where you're the only one up there, and you're trying to recruit your followers, and it's awkward. <laughs> Until you get a, you know, one, your first follower, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then the rest come and follow it. And then, uh, you know, once you get some momentum going, Mwah, you know, there's nothing better. Um, but I was listening to Australia's lovable larrikins, Hamish and Andy, on uh, their podcast. And one of my favorite segments came on. And uh, they were, you know, reading out their listeners' power moves. Now, if you're not familiar with what a power move is, a power move is a way of asserting dominance in a social setting. And um, <laughs> I, I particularly enjoy this uh, segment that they have because it's just so funny, some of the, the power moves that their listeners provide. And so one of them that their listener, uh, this just made me laugh out loud. So the power move was this, and it works best if you're the second person to join the conga line. And you join in and you wait until you've got a good amount of momentum happening behind you. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, you drop the waist of the first person. And they're left on their own, congoing alone. <laughs> and it's cruel, right? But it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, they're getting a little bit cocky, aren't they? <laughs> they're thinking, I'm the engine and you're my carriages. <laughs> But the, the person who drops um, and to form their own conga line, they're, they're thinking, no, mate, we're, we're all engines. <laughs> um, so it's just so funny. But I think that there's a little bit of something we can take away from this that reflects something of the cancel culture that we live in. If you haven't heard of it, cancel culture refers to a form of social ostracism whereby someone is socially or professionally excluded, or you might say cancelled, usually in response to having done or said something seen as offensive. And if we're honest with ourselves, who amongst us has not cancelled someone? We participate in cancel culture every time we overtly or sometimes covertly avoid, dismiss or denigrate people who think and act differently from what we do. We participate in cancel culture every time we click unfollow or block for someone whose preferences don't align with our own. We participate in cancel culture when we walk in a different direction or avoid eye contact with the person whose lifestyle or politics or preferences don't align with ours. So right now, I want you to imagine the person whose views, preferences, politics, whatever, um, is most at odds with your own. Shouldn't be too hard to do. We've all got these people in our lives. And I want you to imagine sitting down to dinner with that person. 
imagine how do you conduct yourself? Do you kind of make small talk through the whole dinner just to get through? <laughs> or do you kind of fire up guns blazing, wading into the culture wars? Or do you, and let's be honest, do you seek to listen? Do you humble yourself? Do you put on an, a posture of curiosity? Ask questions and look for common ground. Well, cancel culture might be a relatively new expression, but believe me, it's been around since the church got started. And the very first Christian conference was a response to cancel culture. Now, as Devo mentioned, I've been preaching through a series at Donnybrook Community Church called Acts for On The Move. We've been preaching through the, the book of Acts as we discover that church, we are a church on the move. The book of Acts is the story of how the mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus' followers became a multi-ethnic, international movement. And right in the middle of that story, in chapter 15, we have the very first church conference in history. It wasn't a, a live-streamed conference with a top-billing speaker and a really catchy title, you know, if, if I was titling it, maybe it would be something like, The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> How to Thrive and Not Just Survive Roman Persecution. <laughs> but it was more along the lines of um, Gentile circumcision, hot or not. <laughs> um, you know, you see I'm not in marketing, right? <laughs> but let me, let me set the scene for you. At the end of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey around Asia Minor and ancient Greece, they stop off at Antioch, where they'd previously founded the first large multi-ethnic international church in church history. And as they reconnect there with old friends, they, they begin to feel troubled by some of the, the comments that they're hearing from among the believers. And so we're going to pick up in uh, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. And it says this, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So what we need to understand is that there were at the time three schools of thought around this question of what's required of these new baby Christians, these new believers. So first, the first school of thought is that of the Judaizers. And uh, these, these people held the view that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish born people, must become practicing Jews in order to be saved and included in this new community of Jesus followers. This group, they were influenced by centuries of tradition of following Jewish law in order to earn the favor of God. And they were also afraid of being persecuted or killed even for looking not Jewish enough. And then finally, they were um, 
you know, I believe placing some of their Jewish requirements on these new believers as a kind of power move, right? In order to gain control of the movement of Christianity. So that's the first group, group one. The second group are the new Gentile Christians who hold the view that faith in Jesus as their saviour is the only requirement for salvation. Um, This photo is one that I took uh, in, well, just by the Sea of Galilee, and it's apt because it's it's many, many nations gathered by the Sea of Galilee, and I just love it. It's one of my favourites. But for these new non-Jewish-born believers, to adopt Jewish practices would be to doubt what God has done for them by grace alone. And it would be, in some ways, to swap out one set of pagan practices for another set of Jewish rituals, which in their mind, you know, was kind of irrelevant, made no sense. Why swap one set of practices for another when we are saved by grace? And finally, they held that baptism was the new circumcision. And so, why be circumcised when baptism, in response and obedience to Jesus, was the sign of their salvation? So before we come to the third position, let's see if we can find some, maybe some parallels to ourselves here. So I've got some have you ever questions. Have you ever thought that grace was too easy? Have you ever felt like accepting the newfound faith of person X would be watering down Christianity and not a good look for the church? Maybe you identify with, let's call her Sarah, who's grown up in the church her whole life, and when seeing, you know, a group of people smoking out the front of the church building on Sunday, thinks to herself, who's going to tell them that's not okay? It's not a good look. Well, how about this? Have you ever struggled with leaving behind your own cultural heritage? to embrace the cultural traditions of the Christian community that you've joined? Do you feel like Christians are asking you to swap out one set of traditions for another? Maybe you identify with Anoush, who's moved to Australia from Iran um, and come to know Jesus. You've been baptised in obedience to Christ, but you don't understand why some Christians tell you that smoking shisha on the weekend is is wrong, when for you it's always been a way of connecting with your loved ones. You try to adopt Western traditions, or Western Christian traditions, like putting up a Christmas tree at Christmas, but you feel like you're just swapping out something for something else, and and you're losing a part of who you are. And I wonder if you answered yes to either of those sets of have-you-ever questions, you might just find yourself falling into one of these two categories of religion or irreligion. So let me tell you what they are. Religion is legalism. Irreligion is lawlessness. Religion is truth without grace. Irreligion is grace without truth. Religion says that a person is justified through faith and a bit of works. Irreligion says that a person is justified by faith and the works aren't necessary. That's irrelevant. Religion forgets the love of God. Irreligion forgets the holiness of God. And it was the conflict between these two views 
that led to the first Christian conference in church history. The religious Jews, they were ready to, to cancel the Gentiles if they didn't become circumcised. Just like you and I, we're ready to cancel people. We're, we're ready to cancel Christians who don't conform to our view of what a Christian should look like. So how did the early church respond to this tension, this controversy? Let's have a look. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. And Peter, Peter's the one who steps up to address the crowd. And he says this, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. In Peter's view, there's no us and them. There's just us. <laughs> And why put more burden on the new guys that even we couldn't live up to ourselves? And then Barnabas and Paul jump up to support Peter in what he's just said, and they tell story after story of how um, God has poured out the Holy Spirit on these new believers, and what more evidence do you need that they've been included in the family? After them, James steps up and he quotes the prophets Amos and Isaiah, saying that God's house would be rebuilt to include the Gentiles. And he finishes his argument with this in verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So James is saying this. He's saying that inclusion of the nations has always been and always will be part of God's plan. And did you catch that? He's saying something pretty profound, I think, that we can learn from this morning. He's saying, don't make it difficult. Guys, for people who are turning toward God, how many of us need to hear that today? Don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. We make it difficult, don't we? Every time we give someone a to-do list, rather than inviting them into transformative relationship with this God that we know and love. Let me explain. You've heard me talk about various people in my life who... I'm seeking to walk alongside as they're turning toward God. And uh, often those people are my neighbours. And as I was writing this part of my sermon this week, um, I watched Alex, my next door neighbour, bring my bins in. <laughs> and I was just thanking God because this is what it means to love your neighbour, is, is also to receive love, to be loved. Um, but you've heard me mention different ones, and I want to... Um, give you a, an illustrated example and we'll call her Erica um, this week. Erica is someone I've been travelling alongside in her journey of turning toward God and she's married to a Catholic man and in many ways her perception of Christianity is something of 
hypocrisy and judgmentalism. <laughs> um, I've been catching up with her for a cuppa on a Sunday night once a week. And the very um, first time we met, I just asked her a lot of questions. Turns out it's actually better to listen than it is to do most of the talking when people are turning toward God. And I learned that Erica's struggled with what she's perceived as, as a pretty judgmental um, Christian faith. And I, I kind of thought to myself that I think what Erica needs most is a deconstruction of what is Christianity and a reconstruction of, of the true gospel of Jesus, that what she thought is not who Jesus is at all. And so that's what week one was. And, and by the end of that conversation, she, <laughs> as we unpacked that Jesus is in fact the least religious guy in the Bible, she said to me, oh, so I, I kind of came in here expecting you to tell me one thing and you told me another entirely. And I don't think religion is the word for this. So what do we call this? And I said, well, what do you think we should call this? And it's, it's kind of a Jesus thing to do, right? You know, you turn the question back. <laughs> um, and she said, um, faith? I'm like, yeah, that's probably a pretty good kind of title <laughs> for this thing and so that was kind of week one and at that point she you know I prayed for her and she allowed me to pray for her her experience of prayer has been kind of negative um, in her previous church experience in the past of attending a few services here and there <clears throat> but she allowed me to pray with some trepidation and I just said simply God show her more of yourself and she came back the following week and she said, I kind of, you know, thought to whoever's listening this week, dot, dot, dot. And it's like someone was listening and they answered. I said, wow, you know, that's amazing. And so these first two times we met, we, I, I prayed for her. But at the third meeting, I invited her to pray out loud for the first time in her life. And she did. She prayed out loud to a God that she doesn't even know exists. <laughs> And she experienced something that day. And I encouraged her to go on her way, continuing to pray, but to use perhaps one of the names for God that we've discovered throughout our reading of Scripture together. And a week went by, and then this text message came through. She says, Hi, Catherine. I've, I think I've decided I'd like to take a break from Sunday night chats for a bit. It's not that I want to stop my journey, I just feel like I need to try and find some understanding for myself. Your wisdom and knowledge has empowered me to not only start being more open to faith, but also to continue it. I've been doing a bunch of thinking, and I'm nearly at a place where I have faith that there is a God. But I think I need to do some soul searching, which is something only I can do. You've provided me with encouragement, the tools I need, and faith to have faith in faith if that makes sense. For that, I'm forever grateful. I have no doubt that in a month or so, I'll have a bunch of questions and hopefully we can have a cup of tea at your house to discuss them all. Thanks so much again for everything and I'll touch base with you if I have any burning questions. I share this with you for a couple of reasons. One, because how might our faith conversations with people be transformed if our goal was actually to help people have faith in faith again. 
rather than to kind of move people over some sort of invisible conversion line. (laughs) How might that transform our conversations? And two, perhaps most importantly, because I think this illustrates the point that James was making in, in Acts, where he said we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Because in receiving Erica's text message, I had two choices. I could have pressed further (laughs) um, or I could respect her wish take a step back make sure I left the door open for future conversation keep praying and that's exactly what I did Um, rather than pressing on her another invitation to church or hounding her with messages I just I, I just left an open door and her response was this she said absolutely fine to check in with me I really appreciate that to be honest I got a verse of the day on my phone and it read keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me everything you heard from me and saw me doing then the God of peace will be with you I thought this resonated with me I'm finding more and more of these verses are making sense when they pop up it's like someone read my mind which has given me inspiration to keep learning how beautiful that God's word is speaking to her. And that's, that's my prayer for each one of us, actually, is that God's word would be speaking to us fresh every day, just like those who are turning to God experience in that early part of their journey. You know, if I'd been in group one um, at that Christian conference back in Acts chapter 15, I might have been tempted to cancel <laughs> Erica Um, because she didn't actually fit my Christian formula for how I thought this journey should have gone. Um, You know, my pride was hurt a little bit when she kind of pulled back from our meetings. But I remembered something. I remembered this, that there is one who had every reason to cancel me, but who instead of taking a step back from me, decided to take a step forward. God's answer to cancel culture is the cross, friends. Instead of cancelling us, he moves toward us. Instead of cancelling me, he cancelled my pride. Instead of cancelling you, he cancelled your sin. The cross is God's answer to cancel culture. So friends, I want to ask you, who are the Erica's in your life? Who are the people who you discern are in their way turning toward God? They might not be sitting next to you here this morning, but in their way, there's a curiosity and openness. They're turning toward God. I want you to hold these people in your hearts and in your minds as we explore how that first Christian conference was resolved. And here's the letter that went out to Antioch and beyond. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm that what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. So a lot of that language might be quite foreign to us and seem quite irrelevant, but I tell you, how are we to understand these requirements that are sent down from headquarters in Jerusalem? And I think in two ways. We can put on the lens of the first, the, the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love people. That's what this letter is all about. If we are truly being transformed by grace, we will be becoming people who love God and love people. What did it look like for these Gentile believers to love God? Well, they needed to let go of the traditions that were rooted in pagan practice. And for them, that was all about no, no longer eating food that was being um, given over to idols and not practicing sexual immorality, which for them was also rooted in their pagan practice. And how were they to love people? Well, they were to let go of the practices that made it difficult for them to share a table with people that were different from them, the Jews. So for the Gentiles, that meant no longer eating food that their Jewish brothers and sisters didn't eat, like food, um, as we read before, the meat of strangled animals. And so really it all kind of just boils down to these two things. Love God, love people. As you consider the Ericas in your own life, those people who are turning toward God, I invite you to apply these same principles. How do we do that? Well, we consider what would it look like for my neighbour or my loved one or my colleague to love God? And we begin to ask the question, what would they need to let go of in order to embrace Jesus? And we let that begin to shape our prayers. God, reveal yourself more to this person this week. Show me what they need to let go of in order to embrace you. Number one. Number two, we ask, what do I actually need to let go of in order to, to love this person or love people more readily? What do I need to let go of to enable me to share a table with people who are different from me? Instead of focusing on what people need to stop doing, maybe I can start focusing on how I can remove barriers, not create them. Maybe I might need to be willing to, to serve halal food instead of the usual barbecue so that I can invite my Muslim neighbours. Or maybe I need to extend my network beyond people who look, think and sound like me. I invite you to sit this week with those two questions. How can my person X love God? What do they need to let go of? And how can I love people? What do I need to let go of in order to share a table? Let me finish with this. I want you to imagine with me a church filled with Christians who instead of making it difficult for those turning to God, 
remember that God moved toward us, not away. He moved toward us while we were still sinners. God's answer to cancel culture is the cross. So let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Let's pray before we head back into some time of worship. Loving God, I, I thank you that this is true of this is true of you today as it was for you 2,000 years ago, that you are still the God who moves towards us. That instead of cancelling me, in fact, your son was cancelled on the cross, but that wasn't the end of the story, and I thank you for that, God, that the resurrection had the final word. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us today that you would help us to be people who love people better, not in our own strength, but by your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there are barriers that limit the way we share a table with others, reveal them to us, that we might not make it difficult for those who are turning to you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.